You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 115. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. Thank you especially to everyone who supports the podcast at Anchor FM, Warrior Priest Podcast at WordPress, Warrior Priest Podcast at WordPress, and especially to everyone who buys me a cup of coffee. Thank you for supporting the podcast. If you'd like to buy me a cup of coffee, if you want to support what I do here at the, at the podcast, help me purchase resources and so on, you can click the support button at Warrior Priest Podcast, Anchor FM. Otherwise, just subscribe and share the podcast. And most importantly to me anyways, let this be a launch pad for deeper conversations that you have with your family, your friends, your coworkers, fellow students, and teammates. Let us start a revolution in this country again, an intellectual revolution, a social cultural revolution, God willing, a nonviolent, non-kinetic revolution. But what can we do to persuade and argue and convince others to simply take a moment to do their own research, to open their mind to the possibility that reality as it is presented to us narratively through the mass media, for example, by politicians and celebrities, may be a fictional narrative. It may be concocting a fictional reality. And that there may be some ulterior motive to that. But that being said, I am going to take a moment uh, to hit a pause on Bolelli's Warrior's Path book. Because the last week in particular, I have been listening to podcasts, interviews, monitoring social media posts about mass shootings. And everyone has an opinion, of course, because we're all force-fed opinions for the day as to what we should be talking about, what we should be thinking about. Again, the mass media being the mouthpieces of many three-letter agencies, the government being a handmaiden for multinational corporations and three-letter intelligence agencies. There is a constant drumbeat that we must parrot the narrative as it is presented to us. We must have an opinion on Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. We must have an opinion on Ukraine. We must have an opinion on monkeypox. We must now have an opinion on mass shootings. Week to week, month to month, we are told, this is what you must talk about. This is the opinion you must have. And I'm doing it right now. We march in lockstep to the drumbeat. There might be many drummers, but it's the same song. It's the same tune that we march to. But the reason that I wanted to address this is because I hear the opinions it's mental health. Mental health is the cause. SSRIs are the cause. I've talked about that here before on this podcast, that I do think we need a thorough investigation and much more definitive research into the consequences long-term of SSRIs, especially as they are prescribed to middle school and high school students. Violent video games, that keeps coming up. That old saw. Violent lyrics and music, that keeps coming up. The hyper-violence that is presented to us by movies and TV shows, that'll sometimes come up. Even we know that all of these mass shooters grew up in single-parent households. They grew up fatherless. They were disenfranchised and alienated. They were often bullied at school. 
That's another reason that's given. They didn't believe in God. They didn't come from Christian homes or Jewish homes or Orthodox Muslim homes. That's another cause. But I don't think these are causes. I think these are fruits. I think these are the manifestation of a disease, whether you want to call it a mind contagion or a social disease. I don't think that we're addressing the root issue, but rather looking at the absolute domination of pop culture as it has infiltrated our lives by way of the 24-7 surveillance state that we now live in. And I think the reason, and again, this is my opinion now, I think the reason that this is happening and the reason that it is pushed upon us by mass media, social media, everyday conversation is because we're afraid to address the root cause. Because to address the root cause, I think, would force us to acknowledge that these individuals are the manifestation, they are the fruit of a diseased society that we as a people have become cancerous. And that fatherless households, godless households, mental illness, prescription drug abuse, the absolute domination of our society by pop culture, which is simply empty cotton candy, empty nutrients, empty calories, entertainment presented to us that reduces us to these dull, numb, subservient, predictable, manipulable people. But I go back to my counsel. I go back to my conversation partner, Friedrich Nietzsche. And even though Nietzsche is often accused of being the OG of nihilism, promoting nihilism, nothing could actually be further from the truth. Nietzsche recognized European nihilism was coming. He recognized the little zygotes of nihilism that he saw popping up everywhere in German society and in Europe in the mid to late 19th century. He warned us that in 150 years, all of this is going to come to a head. And then you'll read my work and understand why I was warning you and why I use such harsh words. So today I want to talk about what I think is the root of mass shootings. And that is the United States of America is dominated by one prevailing ethic, one philosophy, one mindset, and that is nihilism or nihilism, if you prefer to pronounce it that way. What is nihilism? Nihilism? Nihil, meaning nothing. It is the ism of nothing that you believe in nothing, that you desire nothing, that you hope for nothing, and that you yourself are nothing. And even if we say, I desire nothing, well, yeah, but I, I want all kinds of things. Yeah, but the things that you want are nothing. Many people believe in a God, small g, a noun, God. And that God is the projection of their emotions, their mental and intellectual aspirations, maybe even their imaginations. But the gods that they worship are nothing, and therefore by worshiping nothing, they become themselves nothing. Or they crave and desire homes, cars, snowmobiles, boats, jet skis, summer vacation homes, condos, more than three cars in the driveway, monster trucks, whatever it might be, 
that's still nothing. Because when you die, none of it goes with you. And it won't satisfy you. It will not fulfill you. It will not give you a sense of completeness in your life. And therefore, those things are temporary and they are nothing. And by chasing after them, by devoting your life to working in order to acquire those things that are nothing, you yourself become nothing. If you don't know why you love the person that you're with, whether it be a spouse, girlfriend or boyfriend, your children, your job, your gym, your hobbies, they are nothing to you because you've never considered why they matter. The people in your life can actually become nothing to you, which is why we abuse other people, why we take people for granted, why we treat people worse than we treat our dog or our cat. And so Nietzsche wrote in The Will to Power, preface number two, or preface page two, what I relate is the history of the next two centuries. I describe what is coming, what can no longer come differently, the advent of nihilism. For some time now, our whole European culture has been moving as toward a catastrophe, with a tortured tension that is growing from decade to decade, restlessly, violently, headlong, like a river that wants to reach the end, that no longer reflects, that is afraid to reflect. And there it is. That's my thesis for you today. My opinion is that Nietzsche nailed it on the head over 150 years ago. We are restless and we are violent. And we are like a river that no longer reflects people's images, reflects the image of the world back toward the sky. Because it is afraid to reflect back. It's afraid of what it will see. Something that happens in addiction, at least it happened to me, I should say, and others I've spoken with over the years, is that when you are in the absolute captive will of addiction, that you are no longer making choices for yourself, for your own self-interest, for your own self-preservation. All that mattered to me at the very worst as, you know, corner aspect, the, the high watermark of my addiction was I need more opioids. I need more and I need more and I need more. And then I would wash it down with whiskey. So at my worst, at my bottom, at the high tide of my addiction, I would pop 12 or 13 Percocet or Vicodin or Codeine at a time. And I would do that every two to three hours, every day. And I did that for about two years. For those of you who have ever been given a painkiller, imagine what half of a Percocet does to you half a Vicodin. Now imagine taking 12 or 13 at a time every two to three hours, day after day, week after week. That's the only way I was able to function. I ran a restaurant. I managed a restaurant while high on Percocet. I maintained my own apartment, paid bills while I was completely high out of my mind on opioids. That's how I functioned. I knew I was out of control. I told friends and family I was going to be dead by 25 because I could not stop. I had reached terminal velocity. But at a certain point in an addiction, at least for myself, I accepted that I could not stop what I was doing. I had no control. I had no will to stop. 
So even though I knew I was dying, I knew it was going to kill me one way or another, I did not have the willpower, nor did I want the willpower to stop. Because the thought of living without opioids for me was worse than dying. I've talked about it before that when I took opioids, it was like sinking to the bottom of a pool. That sense of buoyancy and weightlessness, that sense of everything is muted. All your senses are muted. Everything is quiet. All you really hear is the beat of your own heart. Because that's as close to getting back in the womb as I'll ever come in this life. And I didn't know that until two years ago when it was revealed, given to me as a revelation. This is why you did that. This is why you can't get past it. Well, now I can because now I know the truth. I was afraid to reflect on the root. I didn't know. But then once it was revealed to me and I saw it, again, it was like opening up all the windows in your house after a long winter of being cooped up inside and feeling the spring breeze blow through the house and the smell and the coolness of the breeze and the comfort and the consolation that comes with the breeze. That sense of new life new possibilities, new hope that it stirs up the imagination of all the possibilities that come with spring winds. What I'm going to plant in the garden this summer, cleaning out the garage, going on trips, going for jogs, going for bike rides, sitting outside in the grass in the sun. You don't think that way when you're in the throes of addiction. Those are things that are nostalgic. You remember them from your childhood. And since I started drinking when I was 15, everything predates that as far as my nostalgia. Decade after decade, restless, violent, unable to reflect, afraid to reflect. Why? Because seeing the truth is devastating. It can cripple you. It can leave you curled up in the fetal position on the bathroom floor. But yet, what is being described by Nietzsche is nothingness. The actual, physical, real manifestation of the word nothing is, I have no hope, not for the future. And I can't look at the past because it is simply littered with the garbage and the refuse, the flotsam and jetsam of my addiction in this example. And it does, it makes you restless, it makes you violent. If people call you on it and say, hey, man, I think you have a problem, or you know you're a drug addict, right? Or they simply dismiss you and they don't want to hang out with you because you're too dangerous, you're too volatile to hang around with. You're too unpredictable. As one of my friends said at the time, being your friend is like riding a roller coaster, man. When you're high, you're high. And when you're low, you're low. But every day it's up and down with you. And he was 100% right. When you believe in nothing... It's hard to predict what's going to happen, moment to moment. You could be extremely violent or extremely tender and kind. You can be the most giving person in the room or the most selfish, conniving, lying person in the room in the very next breath, by the way. Now imagine that that's not just one person, one drug addict. Imagine that's an entire society. We all have a drug of choice. Lane Staley saying that. What's your drug of choice? We all have one. 
Maybe it's opioids. Maybe it's pop culture entertainment. Maybe it's prescription meds. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you in the car right now as you listen to this. Maybe it's the kids in the back seat. Maybe it's jujitsu. We've all got drugs. We're all addicted to something. But are we willing? Do we have the willpower to confront that about ourselves and acknowledge that, yeah, I'm addicted to this? And maybe it's not destructive right now. Maybe it's a positive thing. Maybe it's constructive and productive for you to be addicted to the thing that you're addicted to. But what happens if that thing is taken away from you? What happens if you don't have access to that anymore? What if that person leaves you or dies? What if they grow up and leave the house? What if you can't train anymore? What if your church closed? Where would you worship at? How would you worship? What would you do? So what Nietzsche does for me did is he provided the first detailed diagnosis of nihilism as, again, a social disease, a phenomenon in Western culture. And he, he, he details this in his works. This, there's different forms of nihilism. There's epistemological nihilism, meaning knowledge does not exist or is unattainable for us, meaning like there's no such thing as truth, right? This is the whole postmodern project is to simply destroy truth, to say there is no such thing as truth, big T truth, objective truth. There's your truth and my truth, and we're all trying to find our truth. That's epistemological nihilism. There is no such thing as truth. That's nihilism. There's cosmic nihilism. There's no God. And even if there is a God, he's hostile and indifferent to us. Doesn't listen to our prayers. He's kind of arbitrary and capricious in his will and what he does. Like Odin, actually. And then there's moral nihilism. That this, there is no such thing as good and evil, right and wrong. There's this yes or no of your own personal tastes. So in the United States, then, the kind of nihilism that we suffer from at present is all three. Epistemological, there is no truth except your truth. Cosmic, there is no God, or if there is a God, he certainly doesn't care about us. And moral, there is no such thing as good and evil, right and wrong. There's just the yes or no of your own personal tastes. So we're a three-time loser when it comes to nihilism in this culture. In fact, you can see this in movies and TV shows all the time, especially cosmic nihilism. I've heard characters in shows numerous times say, if there is a God, he certainly doesn't care about me and I don't care about him. That's nihilism. Most of the people, most of the characters who are presented to us by pop culture as heroes are not heroes. They're actually villains. They're nihilists. Heroes are the very opposite of nihilists. They actually believe in a higher cause. They believe in good and evil. The original Captain America as he was written up and drawn by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, represented the ideal of good and evil, right and wrong. He was the leader of a team in World War II called the Invaders. It's one of my favorite comic books ever. I loved the Invaders when I was a little kid. What did they do? Smash Nazis every day, all day. Captain America, Bucky, Namor, the Human Torch, Toro. Who else? I think there might have been a few others added later. But yeah, and Submariner, name her the Submariner. Yeah. Anyways. So what do you do then when 
There is no such thing as truth or objective knowledge. There is no God. There is no higher power. There is no higher law or authority. And there is no good and evil. What do you do then? How do you handle reality when you're taught from the time that you're old enough to listen? There is no such thing as truth, son. There's no right or wrong, good or evil. There is no God. You're going to just figure it out and make your way through the world as best you can. Why? Well, because what else are you going to do? Well, you could kill yourself or you kill other people who are a constant reminder, a reflection, a mirror held up to you that you believe in nothing. You have no cause. Why do you think Antifa and BLM are so appealing to people? Why do you think the NRA and these weekend warrior clubs are so important to people? Both left and right present people with something to belong to, a sense of purpose, a cause greater than themselves. This is how cults are formed. And Nietzsche, of course, was concerned primarily, though, with existential nihilism, existential, which really sums up all forms of nihilism in one little ball to say that life as a whole has no meaning or value. <laughs> there's no God, there's no morality, there's no objective knowledge, no truth, no love, no justice, no righteousness, no courage, no bravery, no kindness, no charity. It's just make, make the best of the life that you have. Everything is essentially an accident, and you just happen to be here. Existential nihilism encapsulates, summarizes all of that in one, that life as a whole has no meaning or value. Nobody that I know asks the why question. Why am I here? Why do I love this person? Why do I live in this house, on this street, in this neighborhood? Why am I working at this job? Why do I love jujitsu and Muay Thai? Why do I not read? Why do I not have any taste in music? Why do I sit mindlessly in front of the TV for four, five, eight hours a day? Why do I not believe in anything or anyone? Why am I incapable of loving and being loved? Why do I think so often of suicide? Why do I not care about my health and well-being? Why do I not care about the health and well-being of others? These are all questions that can, at the very least, upset the flow of nihilistic values and attitudes that are pumped out of the TV every single day. We are brainwashed, indoctrinated in nihilism every day of our lives. And if we don't develop the antennae, attune ourselves to the message of nihilism, because that's really what the message is, to quote the critical drinker, the message, the leftist, Marxist, communist, woke message it's just nihilism. It's just repackaged and rebranded, but it's just nihilism. They believe in nothing, which is why they're hostile and volatile. It's why they can really give you no answer, no intelligent answer, no knowledgeable answer as to why they're doing what they do other than just old white men are evil, even though they take their marching orders from ultimately old white men who are manipulating them. So Nietzsche then thinks that we are always in the process of figuring out our values, what we believe is important and not important, 
what the meaning of doing this or loving that person is, the meaning and the value of working at that job or maintaining that friendship, going to the gym. We're always processing our values, meaning we're always making judgments, which again, this is popular on social media. Only God can judge me. Mm, too late, he already has. Now what are you going to do? Which is really a nihilist mantra, only God can judge me. Okay, good. Describe for me theologically your God. Define God for me so I understand what you mean when you say God. Because God's just a noun like table or dog or grass or sky or book. What do you mean by God? That's like saying I love my wife. Well, there's lots of wives. What do you love in particular about your wife, the one who has given herself to you as a gift? And what does she love about you as her husband? Have you ever asked why? We're always in the process of figuring out what we value and what we don't value. And so without that, life would be almost unrecognizable as human. We would probably cease to exist as human beings without values, without constantly engaging in value assessment and application. Even those who say that there is no such thing as objective values as inherent meaning or worth in a person or a thing, that in and of itself is assessing the value of the person or thing. It's making a judgment. And so Nietzsche's primary concern about nihilism is what people take to be valuable. What do they judge to be of value? Is burning down cities valuable to the people that are burning them down? Does it give their life a sense of meaning and purpose? Does it give value to what they're doing? People that buy dozens, if not hundreds of guns and thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition, does that give meaning to their life? Does it add value to their life to own those things? It's something I thought about the other day when I was loading clips. Because, of course, there was a run on guns and ammunition last week as I record this June 15, 2022, because, of course, Congress and the Senate are making a run at it trying to institute red flag laws, increasing the tax on AR-15s by a thousand percent. Why? Because they want to disarm us, of course. Why? Because a disarmed population is a passive, controllable population. Look at Canada. Look at Australia. Look at countries where they're not allowed to own guns. So what is it that gives your life value? Meaning. Because whatever it is, you will act on that. You will manifest those values in your own life, whether it be burning down a city, buying guns, going to the gym every day, telling your wife and children that you love them as you walk out of the house. What matters to you? But it is not enough to escape nihilism that you value something in a very serious way. That's not enough. Like I said, it upsets the signal. It interrupts the flow but it's not enough to escape it, especially when the entire society in which you dwell has become indoctrinated and embraces nihilism because, to my original point, we have no philosophical foundation in this country anymore to even address this conversation. If I say that the problem with America is nihilism, people go, what's that? Well, now I have to give you a philosophy lecture, which nobody wants that. 
it seems condescending, like I'm talking down to you, I'm mansplaining things. But if I can't even bring up nihilism and have a conversation about it with you, where do we even start when I'm saying you don't believe in anything and all the examples that you list are just more nothingness, but you believe there's something, you've assessed value to the, your, your beliefs, your personal morality, your personal truths, as you call them. You think they mean something. You believe that they have value. How then can I cause you to reflect or persuade you to reflect on the fact that the things that you embrace that give your life intrinsic value and meaning are nothing. They're ultimately nothing. So it's not enough to just simply say, there, my life has value and the things that I do have value to me. No, there's more to it than that. Nihilism consists in a person's inability to find value and meaning in the higher aspects of life and the world. It's pretty much the thesis of this entire podcast is that we must find value and meaning in the higher things, the higher things of life, the higher things of this world. That's why the thesis is the intersection of conflict and belief. As a pastor, as a Christian man, as a theologian of the church, as a philosophically-minded person. These are the questions that I'm constantly chewing on in my mind. Which God do I believe in? Why do I believe in this God? What do I think about Jesus? And why do I believe Jesus is the Son of God? Why am I a pastor? Why do I serve a congregation? Do I actually believe what I preach and teach every week? As a former atheist, these are the questions that occupy my time and attention because I recognize that many Christians in my church that I serve are functional nihilists. They confess one thing with their mouth, but then when I sit down with them privately and they confess their heart to me, they don't actually believe in any of the things they're saying. And I, I'm sure, actually, at this point, after doing this for many years, 15 years in the ministry, 30 years as a Christian, or about 30 years, a little under actually, 26 years as a Christian. I've met many, many Christians who are nihilists. Functionally, they're nihilists. Intellectually, they're Christian. Intellectually, they believe that Jesus is their Savior. Intellectually, they believe what their pastor preaches and teaches, what they sing and pray. But in actual fact, they don't. Because they're unable to find any value or meaning in their life and the world. And so amongst the people that I've interfaced with over the years, it's not the atheists or the, even the agnostics or even people of other religions that I interface with that I find struggling with this, although they do for sure. It's the Christians that I interface with that struggle with this the most. Going back to what I said earlier about movies and TV shows, well, if there's a God, he doesn't care about me and I don't care about him. I've actually heard many, many Christians say that. They've said it to me as their pastor. They've confessed it in tears. I believe there's a God. I believe that he created me and everything that exists. I just don't believe that he cares about me. I don't believe he listens to my prayers. That's a hard, hard thing to hear, especially when they're breaking down. I actually... My wife confessed that to me when we were dating. She had a crisis of faith, as we call it, because I kept challenging everything that she was saying. I kept calling her out for cliches and trite platitudes. 
I kept calling her on the tropes that she kept reciting and asking, why are you saying that? Do you really believe that? Have you really thought about what that means, what you're saying? And worst of all, I'd say, that's not, a, that's not in the Bible. I've read the Bible front to back eight times in the last three years. That's not in the Bible. So where did you hear that from? Well, my pastor taught it to us. Well, your pastor didn't get that from the Bible, so where did he get it from? If we can't ask the why question about the higher things of life, how can we address the temporary lower things? Because that's really, in my opinion, what's happened in the United States today, is that we've taken the lowest, basest, worst aspects about human beings and elevated them to the level of higher things, almost divine, actually, in some cases, like the cult of the branch Covidians. But here's Nietzsche then, and here's his definition of nihilism. It is the radical repudiation of value, meaning, and desirability. Radical. The word radical from the word radix in Latin, meaning the root. So when someone says that's radical, what they really mean actually is that's the root cause, that's the root thing, that's the original thing. So it's radical, meaning we're going right back to the source, and we're going to damn that river at the source. There are no values other than your own personal tastes. There is no meaning other than whatever you, whatever value you assign to the thing or person that you're with. And do you desire it or not? If it's desirable, then it's usually good. And if it's good, it usually has value. That's kind of how this process works. Well, if I desire something that's destructive to you, but yet it gives my life meaning and value, what does that mean for you then? Well, not, uh, not ironically, not surprisingly, his definition comes from The Will to Power, Book One, European Nihilism. Think about that. In his book, The Will to Power, which he didn't write, his sister published it. It was his journals and letters. So we have to be very, very cautious because she was masterful at editing Nietzsche to agree with her fascistic belief system. But nonetheless, nihilism is the radical repudiation of value, meaning, and desirability. Why do you think nihilists are so unattractive? And I don't mean physically. I've met nihilists who are physically beautiful people, handsome people. People that you look at and go, man, you hit the genetic lottery. God blessed you twice with physical good looks. But inside, you are soul empty. You are soul dead. Why? Because you have no values. Your life means nothing. The things you do mean nothing. And therefore, you are not desirable to me. I don't crave your time and attention, your presence in my life. Why? Because you're a bummer, man. You don't want to ask the big questions. You don't want to address. You don't want to reflect in the river, at the river's side. Because you're afraid that like Narcissus, you'll be cursed and have to be stuck there for eternity, contemplating your own reflection. People won't even take a peek into the mirror. And that goes back to my earlier point about addiction. In the throes, in the deepest, darkest days of my addiction, the last thing that I ever wanted to do was look in the bathroom mirror. I avoided it all together. Why? Because when I looked at myself in the mirror, I didn't like what I saw. And so I deceived myself. I lied to myself about what I saw. And I used drugs and alcohol to convince myself, brainwash myself that I looked just fine. 
And then after I got clean and sober, I realized I looked like a member of Marilyn Manson's band. I looked like a zombie on a picnic. So the problem of nihilism is explicit in Nietzsche's The Will to Power, as I noted, which is an anthology of selections from his notebooks, his diaries, his journals. But again, as I said, we have to be very cautious when we read The Will to Power because his sister published it and she edited it and added ideas to it that he himself did not write or want published. So we do have to read it with a very critical eye. And so we have despair, disorientation, as kind of the foundation blocks of nihilism, as Nietzsche saw it. And he associates nihilism as hopelessness. He agrees with Schopenhauer, he agrees with Buddhism, actually, that nihilism, nothingness, is hopelessness. And when one is hopeless, one believes in nothing, and because one believes in nothing, they become hopeless. It's a circle of, of violence done to one's self, which then, of course, explodes outward, Onto others. So for Schopenhauer, another philosopher, nihilists maintain strong value commitments. Suffering's bad. We've talked about that on the show when I talked about slave morality and Nietzsche's criticism of the slave mentality, that any kind of pain and struggle, bad, morally bad. Well, that's nihilism. The moral, the moral foundation of nihilism is if it hurts or feels bad, it's bad. And if, it's, if it makes me feel pleasure and it's good, then it's good. Well, what if it hurts other people? Nah, 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 man. You, you do you. Whatever you do in the privacy of your own home or in your own yard, as long as you're not hurting me, that's nihilism, by the way. If you've ever said that, you're, you're spouting nihilistic rhetoric. Because you're basically saying, I have no value system. I have no morality. I don't believe that we should live in community with each other, loving and serving each other. You just go over there by yourself and do your thing, and I'll go over here by myself and do my thing. Yeah, those are the fruits of nihilism. But the world is full of suffering. In fact, there's more suffering and pain in the world than there is pleasure. We are constantly buffeted, hit with unpleasant things, pain, boredom, tedium, hopelessness, depression, sadness, struggle, the violent nature of just walking out the door in the morning and going to work. And so, in my opinion, life is ongoing hostility, punctuated by moments of tenderness. Well, what happens then to the nihilist? Well, what's the purpose of existing? What's the purpose of life when life is so bad, when life is just pain and suffering and struggle? They don't live. They're not living. We talked about this in the last episode. They're also not dying because they're avoiding death because, hey, I like living even though I hate my life. Welcome to being 14, right? Existence is bad to the nihilist. And it would be better if we had never been born. We hear this all the time too. So a Buddhist, for example, then condemns existence and seeks to detach himself from the world, from life, from existing. In Buddhism, you seek to liberate yourself from this cycle of aimless drifting and mundane existence. While Nietzsche, on the other hand, says, no, wrong. You should remain faithful to the creation. You should remain faithful to your relationships, your family, your friendships, 
remain faithful to your ideals, your goals, you should be a free spirit. Again, that's what Ubermensch really means. Free spirit. Be free, but be free to be brave and courageous. Be free to be kind and just. Be free to be courageous and charitable. Be free to remain faithful, to show fidelity to those who are faithful to you. As Nietzsche said, you know, the fact that you lie to me doesn't mean that I can't forgive you. It means that I can never trust you again. Well, if there's no such thing as truth, then that also means there's no such thing as lying. There's simply presenting my truth to you, however I construct it. And even if I know I'm quote-unquote lying to you, because I would argue as a sidebar that objective reality doesn't cease to be objective reality simply because we're subjectivists. We all know in our conscience, in our heart, we know the difference between right and wrong. That's why we're so volatile. We know good and we know evil, even if we attempt to ignore it and turn a blind eye to it. We know. We know, for example, I, I should say this, I know, for example, as a parent, that when someone says to me, a teacher, a principal, somebody in the community, a leader, somebody on TV, when they say to me as a parent that it is natural for me to expose my children to drag shows, to trans people, to take them to gay pride parades, to expose them to pedophilic images, videos, and teachings, that that's normal, that that's actually positive and good to let my five-year-old make her own decisions about her sexuality. As a parent, I know inherently, again, take Christianity off the board, take theology off the board, take philosophy off the board, take any sense of moral or, or theological framework, just take it off, just flatten everything out, we're just at, a, at an empty table. If you're sitting on the other side of the table and you tell me that I should expose my daughter to pedophilic adults doing things sexually with children, that that's normal, that that's a normal sexual proclivity, I know that that's wrong. I know that's evil. That's vile. And I also know you're probably a pedophile and you're trying to justify the fact that you know yourself that you're a pedophile and that that is morally reprehensible, what you're saying. It's perverted. But of course, just saying that on a podcast, I can get doxxed. I can get canceled for just saying that out loud because that's where we're at as a society, that pedophiles who are teachers at the elementary, middle, and high school level, at the college level, pedophiles in every corner of governments, locally, state, and federally, they're pushing this agenda. But how can you say that, Donovan? How can you say that they're pedophiles? Because no person in their conscience would ever argue with any sense of faithfulness, with any sense of zeal, that it is okay to expose children to pornography, to sexually explicit images, to expose them to people, adults in this case, who woke up one morning and decided, I'm not a man, I'm a woman. I'm not a woman, I'm a man. After that, we can ask the why. Why are they pushing this so hard? Well, I've talked with enough sex offenders as a pastor. I've visited enough prisons, 
heard enough confessions to know. A pedophile knows what they're doing is wrong. They know they're morally evil when they do it. And many want to act on it. Many do act on it and then seek to justify the act after the fact because they know what they did is vile and evil. But of course, in the United States, because the mass media and celebrity who is, you know, again, populated with pedophiles, they push this this narrative. Disney pushes this narrative. Netflix pushes this narrative. Amazon pushes this narrative. You can't go anywhere or turn on any app without being bombarded with sexually explicit images of children, of adults. We live in a hyper-violent, hyper-sexualized, absolute pop culture society now. And the war is for our children's souls. That's my opinion. That's my belief. On a philosophical and a theological level, I believe that. And I think Nietzsche, actually, of all people, would agree with me. Both theologically and philosophically, he would agree with me. There is a predominance of evil in this world. There's a predominance of darkness in the world. And it's punctuated by light here and there. People who are light. But overwhelmingly, the world is dark. And so the little light that we receive is fleeting. The hope we receive is momentary. And that's why so many people don't ever want to ask the why questions because they don't want to be confronted with the fact that maybe their entire life is caught up in the pursuit, is captive to the servitude of nothing. People who are nothing, who offer nothing of value or meaning to you. Things that you consume and chase after that are ultimately nothing. They're just cotton candy. They're empty calories. And so even studying Buddhism will make you a nihilist. And then secondly, disorientation. So we have despair and now we have disorientation. And this is where we're going to get into the Christian side of the house because I'm a Christian, so I'm going to address this. And I love using Nietzsche to argue Christian points. So here we go. Nihilism, and this is again, I think, why Christianity above and beyond all other religions is attacked. Now, I would say this. Christianity as an institution is not what I'm talking about. Christianity as a confession of faith is what I'm talking about. Christianity as an institution is no different than any other institution. It is concerned primarily with self-preservation. And Christian churches, Christian church bodies that are institutional will cut grace and mercy off at the knees to save the institution. But Christianity as a confession of faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, that is attacked constantly, especially the last 20 or 30 years. Why? Because Christianity disorients nihilists. Why? Well, because we believe there's a God who created everything, and we believe that God became flesh and blood, was born, died, and rose from the dead on the third day, who sends his spirit to take possession of us, to create faith, to create charity and hope in us, to turn us from believing in nothing to believing in everything that is good. What is good about life, what is good about creation, what is good about God, what is even good about suffering and struggle. Ooh, there it is. The great offense to a nihilist. That suffering is redemptive. Hmm. So the Christian is not a nihilist, is not despairing, is not hopeless. 
Why? Because he is reassured daily by his faith, her faith, that there is a God, that he is personally involved in your life. The proof of this is that he became flesh and blood and dwelt amongst us. And that in the end, there is redemption. There is a last day. There is a judgment. But that we have already been judged at our baptisms into Christ, in his name. And therefore, at the last judgment, we will not be judged. Instead, we will be raised from our graves and welcomed into the heavenly banquet without end. That's what we believe. You don't have to believe that. You can consider what I just said absurd and childish. I get that. I think it's absurd. It is childish. But Jesus said, if you don't um, have faith like a child, you'll never enter, enter the kingdom. So, bonus. So, the, the antidote to, de, to the despair, to denialism, is actually Christian faith. Why? Because to believe in something higher than yourself, greater than yourself, that is also personally involved in your life, it gives you a sense of place and time and meaning and purpose. It locates you in the world as a creature of God, as a child of God, even more importantly. It locates you in the conversation about salvation and redemption, entry into the kingdom of God, eternal peace and comfort. This disorientation then is actually seen in Nietzsche's famous parable of the madmen, which we just read two weeks ago on another podcast that I do that's theological. This is the parable of the madman from the gay science. What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? There it is. And here's the famous quote that is never given in its full context, and now you're about to see why. God is dead right? You hear that. God is dead. The ultimate nihilistic mantra. God is dead. Nietzsche said it. So Nietzsche is a nihilist, says so many college professors who are dumber than a bucket of hammers. But here's the rest of it. Now listen to this, because this is actually Friedrich Nietzsche making a Good Friday confession. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers, of all murderers. What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred game shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Hmm. <laughs> Must we not make ourselves into little gods in order to convince ourselves, to brainwash ourselves, to believe that murdering God was worth it? We are the new gods. We are the Mardukes who slayed the chaos beast Tiamat. We will remake the entire universe in our image from the blood of the old dead god. And the blood that falls from the old dead God, we will make into people, men and women, and we will make them our slaves. That's the Babylonian creation myth. 
That's the transhumanist ethic, by the way. I just heard it two weeks ago. And I was like, wow, you, this sounds just like the Babylonian creation myth. That's pretty cool. Nothing ever changes, by the way. Nothing. The theory of evolution has so many holes in it, you could drive a ocean liner through it. And that's the biggest one for me. The human heart hasn't changed. Not in thousands of years, not in millennia. You can say what you want about micro or macro evolution, but the human heart has not changed. At all. So Nietzsche is like a seismograph for us today that detects earthquakes. Well, the massive, the great earthquake, the earth-shattering earthquake that is going to split the earth in half and send us hurtling into the ether away from the sun was caused by us murdering God. Nietzsche, the atheist, said that. In fact, it's why he denounced Christianity in his day as moralistic, therapeutic, and deistic, and not Christian. He condemned the preachers because they weren't preaching Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sin. And then when they did, he rejected that because ultimately what Nietzsche could never accept about Good Friday was that Jesus forgives murderers. He says it. You want to turn murderers. You want to convert murderers into forgivers. And that I cannot accept because that is not just. And the God that I read about in the Bible is a God of justice. To him, it's not just. The entire history of humanity is sacrifice, according to Nietzsche. Human sacrifice in particular. And so, of course, God sacrificed himself as a one-time-for-all sacrifice to set us free from the need to sacrifice, to earn our own personal redemptions in our own lives, whatever that looks like and means to us. But the fact that God would forgive his murderers to Nietzsche is the most unjust declaration ever made. And therefore, he pushes himself back from the table and says, no mas, that's too much. It's too far. It's not just. And he's right. According to human standards of justice, it's not. But what if God's justice is not our justice? What, again, if we have constructed a model of good and evil that is a perversion of God so that what God calls good, we call evil, and what God calls evil, we call good? Again, how can you be a nihilist and make up your own rules as you go if there's a higher power who has already established the rules? Well, you just reverse everything. What did God say? We're going to do the opposite. This is what children do, by the way, when they leave their parents' house. Well, I'm going to do the opposite of what my parents did. This is especially true when you have your first child, at least in my instance. My wife and I did not grow up in, in healthy, well-adjusted homes. And so when my first son was born, we decided we'll just do the opposite of everything our parents did, and that'll be great. Well, that lasted like six months at most before we both sat down and went, well, that was dumb. We should have known better than that. We just jumped out of the one ditch and ran headfirst into the other ditch. And then we had to figure out how to be parents. But that's what nihilists do. They're like children who are mad at their parents. And so they say, well, we'll just do the opposite of what our parents did, and that'll be the right answer. No, you're just running into the other ditch. And you're just running back and forth from ditch to ditch because you don't ever ask why. Why do you disagree with the way your parents raised you? Why do you think doing the opposite of what your parents did is better or good? Why do you think it's good? What does good even mean to you? What does better mean to you? You have no philosophical foundation or theological foundation from which to work off of. So how can you even determine these things for yourselves? And of course, this leads to despair. It leads to hopelessness. 
It causes us to want to lash out violently at the universe because we have no God to lash out at. So we lash out at each other. And we seek to destroy each other because we are constant reminders that the world is meaningless and therefore our lives are meaningless and everything's an accident and nothing has any value or purpose outside of the value that I assign to it. Of course people are going to act out. Of course they're going to self-medicate and anesthetize themselves. Of course they're going to lose themselves in sex and drugs and rock and roll. Of course they're going to spend eight hours a day on their gaming console. Of course they're not going to want to go out and establish human-to-human relationships. Of course they're going to work at jobs they hate because they don't believe in anything. So Nietzsche scholar Walter Kaufman, who did the Viking portable library, the portable Nietzsche, he translated Nietzsche. He writes, Nietzsche felt the agony, the suffering, and the misery of a godless world so intensely at a time when others were yet blind to its tremendous consequence that he was able to experience in advance, as it were, the fate of a coming generation. And that is from Walter Kaufman, Nietzsche, philosopher, psychologist, antichrist, part one, the death of God and the revaluation. Because Nietzsche argued morality in his day, in his society, truly was a social construct. It wasn't based on objective natural law arguments. It was simply politicians and people in power saying, this is good and that's evil because this benefits us and it's good. That doesn't benefit us, it's evil. And since the state was in charge of the church and basically paid for seminarians to go through seminary and become pastors, the churches taught and preached what they were taught to preach. And the people then that went to church simply parroted what they heard in church. Because the pastor's a man of God, after all, he would never mislead us. So when Nietzsche proclaims the death of God, it's out of a profound and deep well of melancholy, of sadness. It's a result of religion having been the purpose and meaning of life for people for millennia being undermined by the age of the Enlightenment, brought about by scientific rationality, which permeated every corner of society, just like today. Science has obviously become our God. And the scientists, the quote-unquote experts, have become high priests and prophets. We just spent two and a half years going through this nonsense. And there's still people that believe it. Why? Because they're true believers. So what science shows us is that we should remain skeptical, uh, skeptical about the idea of a higher power, of a God, of an afterlife. Because science says, you're a speck of dust. You're the quintessence of dust, to quote Hamlet. In relation to the, the universe, you're nothing. You're the fly on the back of a cow in the middle of a field being observed by a car going by on the highway at 80 miles an hour. In other words, you're unseen, you're irrelevant, you're unimportant, you're nothing. You are literally the quintessence of dust. And also, of course, we're just the product of evolution. We're an accident. We're an accidental birth in the flux of becoming and then perishing. How does that not cause someone to lash out? How does that not cause someone to cry out, to scream at the sky or at a wall or at a crowd of people? Look at me. Acknowledge me. Tell me that I exist, that I'm here, and that I matter to you. 
tell me that. Now do that to a pubescent child who is already struggling with a flood of hormones, peer pressure, sitting confined to a desk eight to ten hours a day, five days a week, who is just trying to get along with his peers to just blend in and not be picked on or bullied or, or picked out. Now take that same child and expose him to a counselor or a therapist or a psychiatrist and then get that child hooked on prescription medications and told, if you ever go off of these, your life is going to go back to the way it was before. You have a psychological and a physical addiction now to a drug, a chemical that alters your brain chemistry. Drugs that can cause schizophrenic breaks as a side effect, hallucinations, dissociative behaviors. So you have these these boys, in particular, of course, boys. Because if you don't know, here's another sidebar, and I won't go too deep into this, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this one, but according to Aleister Crowley and Anton LaVey, two famous Satanists from the last century and the century before, the purest form of, of sacrifice to Satan is a young white boy. The purest form of sacrifice to Satan is a adolescent white boy, according to them, which they're taking that from the Enochian mysticism that has been around since the Sumerians. So thousands and thousands and thousands of years of this teaching, Enochian uh, magic, Enochian uh, mystery religion stuff. And in this Enochian mystery religion, this is the, the purest sacrifice. Who are being sacrificed now on the altar of transgenderism? Primarily young white boys who are targeted and isolated at the high school level and the middle school level, young white boys. This isn't a racist issue. It's not a misogynistic sexist issue. This is a common sense, observe with your own eyes issue. All of these school shooters are pubescent white boys. Who is being attacked most violently and told you're born racist more than anybody? Little white boys, adolescent white boys. Who's told that you're the problem? Who has been marginalized and vilified more than any other group of people in the United States today? Heterosexual white men. Who has been targeted for generations and pumped full of estrogen-rich products? testosterone blockers, heterosexual white men. I'm not saying anything controversial. The data proves all of this. Objectively speaking, heterosexual white men are the most marginalized and vilified group of people in the United States today. Do we care about all the black men who are killing each other in Chicago every week? Is that on the, the, the mainstream news every night? Why is no one demanding that Mayor Lightfoot do something on a national level? Why is the president or Congress or the Senate stepping in and saying, you need to fix your problem? An entire generation of young black men are dead and you're doing nothing. Or Baltimore, or Atlanta, or Houston, or Oakland, and on and on it goes. Young black men are killing each other with guns all, every day. Why is that a non-national conversation? I call it an epidemic. More people die in Chicago in a weekend than have died in mass shootings in like the last five years. But we don't talk about that. Why? Well, that's racist. 
No, actually, I think not talking about it is racist. I think only talking about gun control when a white kid does it, just like we talk about drugs when a white kid ODs. That's racist. Why don't we talk about the black communities where drugs are rampant and violence is rampant? Just saying. (laughs) I don't think that's a Democrat or Republican left or right problem or issue or talking point. I think it's a human talking point. I think it's a social talking point. But again, we don't want to reflect. We don't want to step in and admit, what do all those young black boys have in common? Where's their father? What's their education look like? What are their schools look like? What are their teachers teaching them? What are their community leaders showing as an example of how to be a strong black man in America today? Right? Are they going undiagnosed? Are they going untreated? Do they have anywhere they can go for counseling and advice and mentoring? It's like I've talked about on the show way a long time ago, actually. Why is there not a martial arts gym in every black ghetto community in the United States? Why aren't there MMA gyms in every community? Every urban, as they like to say, urban community, which just means ghetto. It just means the worst part of town. We all know that. I've lived in ghettos. I know exactly what they mean when they say urban because they said it while I was watching it and going, wait a minute, I live there. Oh, you mean the ghetto. Got it. Why don't we address that? Because it's an uncomfortable truth that this goes back to Jim Crow. <laughs> so therefore it goes back to slavery. We still, we still haven't addressed slavery in this country adequately, intelligently. We definitely haven't addressed Jim Crow in this country. And whenever it comes up, We just chalk that up to the past, or we just start talking about reparations. Neither one is, in my opinion, useful or helpful to move the ball forward. Why? Because we're nihilists, and we'd have to admit that because we believe in nothing and we hold nothing to be of ultimate value, the life of a young black man might arguably have less value in our society than the life of a young white man. Maybe. Possibly we have that conversation without left and right, Democrat and Republican jumping in and politicizing it. I don't know. I just find it interesting that whenever somebody shoots up a school, we're told immediately, single parent household, troubled youth, psychiatric problems, mentally ill, bullied at school, marginalized, alienated, all these things. It's, it's, like, it's like they're reading off of a checklist for young, disaffected white youth. We have a lot of problems in this country. But I think one of the primary problems is that we're not addressing what we've done as a culture to young boys, to young men. Not just white, not just black, but all young men, all boys. I experience it. That's why I turned to drugs and alcohol. Others I know have experienced it. They have similar stories to me. Maybe you have a similar story. That's why I work like hell every day to show up for my kids and the kids that I teach in my classes and the kids that I pastor. I want them to know that I'm here as their mentor, as a a source of counsel and advice, as somebody you can just hang out with and be like, hey, coach, can I talk to you about this? Or hey, pastor, can I talk to you about this? And maybe not when they're 10, but they'll remember me when they're 20 or 30 and they'll come back. They have. We just need, in my opinion, again, just my opinion, I appeal to you, if you're listening to this and you're a man, Please consider being a mentor. Please consider being an educator. 
and simply standing up and just being masculine, being a man and embodying all of the great aspects of what it means to be a man, traditionally speaking. It doesn't have to be your cause. It doesn't have to be something that you make a website or, or do you even do a podcast about? It could be just the quiet professionalism of showing up every day and saying, today I'm going to be a good man for my kids, the kids in my community, kids at school, kids at church, kids at the gym. It doesn't matter where. Whatever you do, think about the why of it. Why not you? Why not be that mentor? Why not be that example? Why not be that counsel and advice? Because to be blunt, pop culture kind of presents us as, well, child molesters, right? Oh, that guy over there is hanging out with kids. He must be a pedophile. Well, who usually says those things? Pedophiles, actually. It's called, uh, what's that called? Projection, (laughs) right? And yet, of course, when you're a predator, you're going to go where the prey is at. Of course, youth groups are going to attack or attract predators. Of course. Of course, schools are going to attract pedophiles. Of course. But that's all the more reason then that for those of us who are not to step up and be watchmen on the walls to say, yeah, that guy gives me a bad vibe. I got a bad feel off that guy. We need to look into that more. Did you do a, did you do a background check on that guy? I think we need to observe him a little more closely, just make sure he's not touching the kids inappropriately or saying things to the kids that are inappropriate. But in a culture that's nihilistic, just saying that exhibits that you're outside the norm because you actually believe in good and evil and that there is a right way to behave around kids and a wrong way to behave around kids. It's ironic to me that in our culture, we worship youth and yet we seek at every opportunity to destroy their youthfulness. It's satanic. It's evil to me. It's vile. It's so perverted. It's so, it's so quintessentially nihilistic. Let's put it that way. And so Nietzsche in The Will to Power writes, for why has the advent of nihilism become necessary? Because the values that we have had hitherto thus draw their final consequence because nihilism represents the ultimate logical conclusion of our great values and ideals. Because we must experience nihilism before we can find out what values these values really had. We require sometimes new values. Excuse me. So if there's no God to guide us, if there is no recompense to our suffering, if there is no meaning granted to us. We will become nihilistic. We will become self-destructive because our choices will not be permanent. They will be temporary. And we will recognize that by and by. And that also will infuriate us, that we can never seem to find anything permanently satisfying to us, nothing that actually lasts, that gives us comfort and consolation and confidence. It's like, the book of Ecclesiastes begins with vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is just a chasing after the wind. Now that sounds on the surface like Koheleth, the preacher, the, the one who wrote Ecclesiastes, is a nihilist. But you have to read the rest of Ecclesiastes to get to his point, which is that at one time I was the king and I had everything. I had power and influence. I snapped my fingers and it was there. Anything I desired was mine. Anywhere I wanted to go, anyone I wanted to see, I could do it. I had an army to back me up. But then in the end, none of it satisfied me 
because I realized that it was all just wind. It was all breath. It was all transitory. It wasn't permanent. Power is transitory. Influence, wealth, it's all transitory. If you're a wolf, at some point, you're going to be an old wolf. And then the young wolves are going to come. And they're going to unseat you and take your place as the alpha male in the pack. What you thought was permanent, turns out wasn't. And so the reason then that nihilists get so upset with Christians is because our confession of faith is self-destructive to them. (laughs) That we believe there's a God, we believe we will be repaid for our suffering at the end, and that our life does have meaning, that we were created for a purpose. So Christianity in and of itself as a confession of faith in Jesus, as the Son of God, is the ultimate nuclear strike on nihilism. But for Nietzsche, it's the opposite, actually. That Christianity pitied the poor, the weak, the slaves, and turned that into a virtue. Turned it like God loves you because you're poor, or you're suffering, you're a slave, and he's going to redeem that. And for him, that was the ultimate nihilism, actually. So when I argued that Christianity is the antidote to nihilism, Nietzsche actually said in his day, Christianity was actually the highest form, or in this case, lowest form of nihilism, below all the others we listed earlier. And that's why he rejected it. So I think it's what, hour 13 minutes into this, I went a little bit longer than I normally do again. But to wrap it up then, as I said at the beginning, I'll say it again at the end. I think, in my opinion, that the root cause of mass shootings is nihilism. And that everything that we name as a cause for why this kid went off and started shooting people, we're simply picking the fruit, the lowest hanging fruit from the tree, because it's the easiest. Let's blame mental health. Let's blame guns. Let's blame the parents. Let's blame God. Let's blame the institution. Let's blame bullying, whatever. It's low hanging fruit, in my opinion. We need to dig to the root. We need to get radical, hit the radix of this. And to me, the root of all of that is the fact that we believe in nothing. And therefore, as a society, as individual people, we have become nothing. We love nothing. We hope for nothing. We trust nothing, except the yes or no of our own personal taste, which are constantly changing. And so as a consequence, as was said at the beginning, what does this do to us? Well, one, it leads to a catastrophe, as Nietzsche predicted. But it leaves us volatile and scared and insecure and hopeless. And that's no way to go through life. I don't have to tell you that. So even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe in God, ask yourself why. Do you have a moral foundation from which to work off of? And is it philosophical? Is it theological? Why? Why do you believe in what you believe? Why do you believe in good and evil, right and wrong? If our whole society, all of pop culture, conditions us to believe there is no such thing as right, wrong, good, and evil. Why are we deleted from social media? Why are we canceled and doxxed for simply expressing a contrary opinion to the zeitgeist? Why is talking about pedophiles targeting our children actually now a reason to get me deplatformed? Instagram has shadow banned me. (laughs) I have almost a thousand followers on Instagram on one account. And yet, less than 20 people are interfacing with my posts day to day. Why? Because I said the naughty things out loud. Which, of course, after the fact, are always proven to be fact. But it doesn't matter. 
because there's a message, there's a narrative, and it has to be pushed. Why? Why are they pushing this so hard? Because nihilism, the belief in nothingness, the becoming of nothing, makes us predictable and manipulable. And when you believe in something, when you believe in someone, when you have a theological or philosophical foundation from which to work off of, morally, spiritually, in relation to life in the world, you are the most dangerous person in a room full of nihilists because you come with hope. You come with belief. You come with a sense of sacrifice for the greater good. And to those that wish to control us through power, who want to force us to do their will, well, nihilism is just about the best thing ever for them. So you want to be a revolutionary? Don't be a nihilist. You want to start a revolution? You want to start a true rebellion that can topple whole regimes? Learn about nihilism. Establish a theological and or philosophical foundation from which to work, a framework from which to speak out of so that you can converse with people and point these things out and go, hey, that guy's not a hero. He's a nihilist. He's actually a villain. And he's teaching you to be a nihilist. He's teaching you to be a villain. So let's talk about that. Let's have a conversation about that. See those people over there and what they're protesting? They're nihilists. Let's talk about why their protest is meaningless then or why they're lashing out at people that don't believe what they believe. Let's address the why. Let's address the root of nihilism and then seek to, well, not just break up the flow, but stop it altogether in our homes, in our communities, at our church, in our schools, at our gyms. Because I do believe that the reason for these mass shootings, the root cause of these mass shootings, is nihilism. And I think Nietzsche nailed it over 150 years ago. He gave us the blueprint for how to cut this off at the source. So let's listen to him, huh? Otherwise, I will definitely do a Sermonition Sunday this week. I didn't do one last week because I had a meeting after church that went really long and tired me out. So I apologize for that. But life is what it is, so... I'll, God willing, and the crick don't rise, I'll be back on that horse Sunday afternoon. Otherwise, I appreciate you, space monkeys. I'm grateful for you. I love you. I'll talk to you again soon. Peace.